Well, open up in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Today, we close out the first part of the book of Daniel. You see, Daniel, the book is broken up into really two parts. Daniel's one, Daniel 1 through 6 contains a series of stories, a series of, of narratives about the experiences of Daniel and his friends in the land of Babylon. Those stories, those narratives are intended to give us instruction as the people of God, give us encouragement as the people of God about how we are to live when we are faced with living in a place where God is not recognized, where God is not followed. It's a bunch of stories that communicate to us how God's people engage the world around them when they're living as exiles, not just geopolitical exiles, but as spiritual exiles. And so we've been examining the first part of the book, and actually as we come to Daniel chapter 6, the story that we're going to read here in just a moment is probably one of the most famous Old Testament stories outside of maybe David and Goliath and Noah and the flood. This story in Daniel chapter 6, the story of Daniel and the, anybody, anybody? The lion's den. Um, this story is, is very well known, but in many ways it summarizes and reinforces and even expands upon many of the truths that we've already seen in this book. So it's a great chapter to end the first part of the book. Now the second part of the book is, is the part of the book that I wonder, why did I pick the book of Daniel to preach, all right? Because the second part of Daniel, verses, or chapters 7 through 12, are a series of visions and dreams that Daniel had as God communicated to him through these visions and dreams what was happening and what was still, still to come. But uh, we're going to come to that in two weeks. I get next week off from, from preaching. Somebody, Tim Kane's going to come and preach so I can prepare for all those chapters, all right? So, but we'll get to that. But today we're in Daniel chapter 6, so I want you to open up your Bibles there. As I read this chapter, here are the two questions that you should be um, asking of this text. The two questions are, how should exiles engage the world around them? And how should exiles respond to persecution? Those are the two questions that this story is going to answer. So I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter, and then there are about six lessons that I believe that, that we can draw from this story. Now, before I even read it, just as a quick recap, Daniel chapter 6 takes place immediately after the events of Daniel chapter 5, where the Babylonian Empire has just been captured by the Medes and the Persians. And it was led, that army was led, by a guy named Darius. Some people say Darius, it's potato, potato, okay? So I'm going to say Darius. So Darius brings this army, and he captures Babylon. Now, I need to just tell you about Darius for a minute, because you might come across this if you study the Word of God further. The main king of the Persian Empire was a man by the name of Cyrus. And yet, throughout this chapter, we're going to see Darius as the man who is mentioned as the king of the Medes and the Persians. So what's going on there? There is no historical record that refers to Cyrus as Darius, nor is there any historical record that actually refers to a guy named Darius being the head of the Medes and the Persians. So that begs the question, is this a made-up story? And, and the historians will tell you, we don't believe for one second it's a made-up story because guess what? In Daniel chapter 5, we read about a Babylonian ruler by the name of Belshazzar, that for hundreds of years there was no historical record of Belshazzar, and so people wondered, was Daniel chapter 5 also made up? But guess what? A number of years ago, we came across an ancient historical document 
named uh, the Nobodanus Cylinder, and guess what? It said there was a ruler in Babylon at this time named Belshazzar. So while we don't quite yet have historical evidence of this guy Darius, um, we believe that he existed, and the question is, but who was he? Was he Cyrus, just given another name and referred to by another name, or maybe he was a guy named uh, Ugba... Let me see if I can... How do I, I always... Because I'm going to name my, my child this one day. Uh, Ugbara, okay? Ugbara, who was a general of Cyrus. And so he's either Ugbara or he's Cyrus, just referred to by a different name. And while we can't know for sure which one he is, we believe that he was one of, of those two. And so ultimately I share that with you because if anybody ever brings it up and they're just like, see, this is a made-up story. No, no, no. It, it, this is either Cyrus or Ugbara serving underneath Cyrus. We're just not sure. And I believe that one day um, we'll probably once again find, like we did with Belshazzar, the historical evidence he's one of these two people. But with all that said, let's dive into Daniel chapter 6. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter pretty much with almost no comment, and so we just listen. So it pleased uh, Darius, da, not these names, <clears throat> should I call him Darius? Which one do we want to vote? Do you want, Dar do you want Darius? Is that easier? See, now this is going to be messed up because the first hour, hour it was Darius, so this will be fun. Did, all right, we'll call him Darius this hour. All right, there we go, because some of you are like, I can't hear Darius. Okay. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, high official, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel, he became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was given to him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition, that is a prayer, to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." They got some really interesting capital punishment back then, right? Fiery furnace, den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be what? Changed. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done what? Previously. That's going to be important. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, 
O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Yes, that's exactly what I did. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes petitions three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you've served, continually been able to deliver you from the lions. Then Daniel answered and said, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. The king said, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of God. Amen. So if you've been around the church, if you've grown up in the church, this is a story that you're probably familiar with. You've heard even the secular people are aware in some ways of this story. At its very heart, and we're going to get to this at the very end, at, at its very heart and its core, this is a story that solidifies the truth that God rescues and redeems his people 
Those who trust in him, he will not forsake. This has been a, a thread. This has been something that has been woven through all the stories of Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And, and it culminates here with this one more miracle of God's hand working to redeem and to save his people who trust in him. Now, knowing that's going to be so important, but before we actually come to that, that, that truth serves to anchor what I see are six other lessons that pop up out of this story. Six other lessons that have been communicated throughout the book of Daniel up to this point, but that this story looks to reinforce and wants you and I to take in upon ourselves. And the very first of these lessons is what we see Daniel doing when this story starts. When this story starts, what is Daniel doing? Daniel is once again at the age of 80, when you, when you add everything up and, and when this is taking place, at the age of 80, Daniel is serving now one more foreign king. He's acting as a government official one more time. He had done it for Nebuchadnezzar for a very short stint for Belshazzar, and now he's doing it here for Darius. And it's here that we see one of these truths that has been communicated from the very first chapter of Daniel till now, and it's this. For God's people in exile, God's people engage in and seek the good of the communities where they live. One of the things that Daniel has been showing us in his life is this truth, that God's people engage in the community and seek the good of the community where God has them living. It's important for us to see this truth because there is something that is natural for human beings. What is very natural for us, and the history even in America has shown it, is that we like to assimilate. We like to surround ourselves with people who are just like us. In American history, one of the things that you find in all of the major cities in America as our country began to develop was that in these major cities like New York, like Chicago, like, like Boston, there would be these enclaves, these places, well, well, you've probably been there, you know them. You'd find in a city, you'd find Little Italy. You'd find Little China. You'd find Koreatown. You'd find um, the Jewish Quarter. What, what we found in American larger cities is that immigrants came here. One of the things that they did was they arrived in America, and they're like, this is a foreign place. These people don't sound like us. They don't have the traditions that we have. They don't talk like us. And so, so to help themselves, what they would do is they would find people like them. And, and in major American cities, we'd find these huge communities. It's been said of Chicago that the largest Polish population at one time outside of Warsaw, Poland, was actually in Chicago. And, and so there would be these communities that would come together. And, and we do that because it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure. And one of the things that can happen to us is that we can surround ourselves with people like us and, and as God's people fail to actually engage in our communities. And one of the things that Daniel calls us to is, well, Daniel does something throughout his life. I was waiting to show you guys this passage for, for a while. See, see, Daniel here is actually being faithful and obedient to something that God had called all the exiles to do, to be engaged in their communities and to seek the good. See, there was a prophet who lived when Daniel was still a young man in Israel. But before Daniel and his friends were taken from Israel to Babylon, there was a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And the prophet Jeremiah was called upon by God to 
prophesy about to predict and to make the people of Israel aware that the Babylonian captivity was coming. In fact, Jeremiah is actually a great book to read as we're going through Daniel. Um, if you want to start doing that, it, it would be really helpful for you because Jeremiah comes and he says, hey, listen, Israelites, um, because of your lack of faithfulness, there's going to be this season where God's going to take you out of the land of promise and you're going to go to Babylon. But the book of Jeremiah didn't simply just come and say, this is what God is doing. I'm sending the Babylonians to do it. He also came in Jeremiah 29, and God spoke to the Israelites and told them in advance, when they get there, what God desires of them. So check this out, Jeremiah 29, verse 4. In Jeremiah 29, verse 4, we read these words, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But, verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God as he comes and he speaks to the Israelite people before they're about to go away from the land of promise says when you are taken away number one recognize I sent you there. And this is important for us as the people of God where you are wherever God has you you are there by the hand of God. He is not surprised that we're in Valley Center today or Escondido or Palma Valley or San Marcos. Like, God's hand is, is in where you and I are living. Because last time I checked, none of you got to pick your parents and where you were born, right? I mean, surprise me. Maybe you're like, I was in the womb. I was like, you know what? I like Hawaii. San Diego's not the weather. I wanna. Nobody got to do that. God has you where he has you. But look at what he also says. Where you are, seek the welfare. You know what the Hebrew word for that is? It's a word that you've heard before. It's the word shalom. Seek the peace. Seek the wholeness. Seek the good of the city where I am sending you. He doesn't say become a holy huddle. He says pursue the good of that city. Serve your community. Engage in it. And that's exactly what Daniel does. Why does he come to Nebuchadnezzar and not say, you know what, the righteous thing, the holy thing is to only serve the government of Israel. I'm not going to serve you. Why does he come to, to Darius and say, I'm going to serve as one of your officials? Like, Daniel spent the majority of his life as a public servant. Now, in a few instances in his life, God called him to be a prophet to his people. And we could even look at that and we could say, well, that was the holy calling. Like he was really doing the Lord's work when he spoke and he interpreted dreams and he did all that stuff. Like that was God's work there. No, no, no. Even when he was serving as a government official, that was the work God had called him to. Sometimes we have this sacred secular distinction and we can say, you know, the, the Lord's work is the, is the work of the, the pastors or those who are serving in the, in the capacity of the church. God makes it very clear in fact, Jesus was the one who, who said it, I think, best, him being the son of God and all. But he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Jesus said the same thing that Jeremiah said, but he said it to his followers. Where you are, engage. Engage the community around you. Seek its good. Now, the greatest good for any community is that that community would know that Jesus Christ reigns and rules. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, that, that is it. But, but what Daniel did faithfully was he served the kingdom of Babylon, and then he served the Medes and the Persians using the gifts that God had given him. Seek the good of the city. We as God's people aren't to become these holy huddles, but are instead to love and to serve our neighborhoods, to serve where God has us. It is good and right for Christians to engage in public service, to be in government. It's good to have salesmen, saleswomen, to have people who are the construction workers and the plumbers and, the, and whatever those fields, to, to not pull back but to be engaged. Why? So that we can be a light to the world. Jesus even said in his high priestly prayer of John 17, when he's praying to the Father, he said, I do not ask you, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We are to be his people in the world. Jesus prays, you just don't want them to sin, but, but, but they are to be engaged. I shared with the first service, you know, one of the ways that we tried to even just in a very small way, uh, apply this kind of thinking about like how do we serve our community, not just with bringing the gospel, but actually blessing our community. You know, before we ever built this building, before we even ever graded this pad, when we had bought this property for years, we were working with the county, but one of the things that God gave us a, a vision for as a way to ultimately bless Valley Center was for the longest time, Valley Center really didn't have a, a, a playground a place that was kind of prominent or open and, and clean where people could come and pray, or, or yes, pray too, but also play. And so years ago, we built the playground up there. We built that playground because we said, you know, we pray that God's going to let us use this as a place of worship, but we have this piece of property up here that, that people can come to and they can use. And for years now, people come and they bring their families and they play there. It's just a way that we can, can seek the good of our community. I don't want to embarrass him or draw a, a attention to it. You know, Pastor Paul serves as our youth pastor here, and, and he's shepherds, and his full-time job is that, but God, the Lord led it upon his heart to serve on the school board here in Valley Center. And so that's one of the things that, that he does above and beyond just his ministry work. But, but so many of you, you are in the world, and that's where God has you to seek the good of the community, not to pull ourselves back. But make no mistake, as we engage the world around us, Daniel gives us another lesson, though. And this is really a profound one, because we can engage in our community and seek its good, but if we don't do this next, next thing, we're ultimately not going to bring any glory to God. That is, God's people, they do their work with excellence and integrity. Did you see that in the text? Did you see that as Daniel engaged the world around him, there was a, a moral upstandedness, a blamelessness with how he performed his duties. It says in verse 3 that he had a spirit of excellence that was given to him. When people looked at Daniel and how he handled himself, they said, here's a guy who is above reproach. First he served Nebuchadnezzar, then he served Darius he worked hard. He did it with excellence. It said in verse 4 that the officials could not find any grounds for complaint against this guy. How did he work in the community? How did he work as a government official? That, that, see, in that day and age, in that society, like corrupt government officials, they were around then as they, as they are today. They would use their power to abuse and to get ahead. 
Daniel was one of those guys who didn't do that. And so when they looked at his work, they said, we can't find any. There's nobody who's lodged a complaint against this guy. He does things with such integrity. He's so above reproach. We can't catch him in this. We're going to find, we find no fault in him. They go so far as to say the only way that we're going to find fault is if we find it in, in the laws of his God. And I'm going to come to that in just a minute. But, but God's people, as we engage the communities around us, there should be a, a moral excellence, an integrity about the people of God that flows from knowing him and who he is, that we model that to the world around us. And, and Daniel here serves as an example of that for us. I just, I wonder... Can these things be said of us? If somebody in your workplace were to examine how you engaged in your work, how when you engaged in your areas of, of volunteerism, that they would say, man, this person is above reproach. I can trust them. I can trust what they say, and I can trust how they engage. Daniel says this is how God's people function. Out of all people, followers of Jesus Christ, to truly be salt and light means that they're that there is something in us in the way that we engage that's a light and there is no, no darkness. Daniel engaged his community. He worked, but he did it with excellence. He did it with integrity. But there was ultimately a reason why he, he did it. It was because of the faith that he had. See, this leads us to the third lesson that Daniel shows us, is that as we engage our community, God's people do not compromise their faith, but they make it known. The reason why Daniel had this moral excellence and this integrity as he engaged the world around him was because we see so very clearly from the very first chapter of Daniel when he says, I'm not going to defile myself with the food from the king's table, is that Daniel is coming and he's saying, like, my faith in God trumps everything else in my life. And, and it's not just simply that that. He didn't compromise his faith. I'm going to come back to it. It's that he made his faith known. It's remarkable to me that there was something about the way in which Daniel lived and the way in which Daniel spoke that did you see what the other government officials said there in verse 5? They knew through what Daniel said and what he did that he followed only one God and that the laws of his God were what mattered most to Daniel. How could they know that? Could they know that by just simply watching his life? Could they just know that from watching his life? The answer is no. In fact, they use the singular word, God, here. They, they knew. Daniel had to talk about this. Daniel had to communicate this. It wasn't just in his actions. You know, I'll hear some people say, you know, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Um, here's a problem with that statement. The gospel is a message, and unless you're a mime and you can really do a good job miming the gospel, you have to use words. So Daniel not just simply didn't compromise his faith, he made it known. And we see every opportunity that Daniel has when he is brought before the king of Babylon or the king of the Medes and the Persians, he always acknowledges his God. He makes his faith known. I think for us as the people of God today, as followers of Jesus Christ, one of the things that is really on my heart to share with us is that we would never want to find ourselves at the, at the end of our lives in the places where we work, engaging somebody in our workplace and them never having an idea that we serve one greater than our job. Are you tracking with me? 
There should be something about the way that we speak and that we engage that people know that we serve a king greater than whatever our occupation is. That the people around us could say, I know that so-and-so serves this God. And by the way, this whole idea of not compromising is really important because Daniel was so tempted and tried, as were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego multiple times. They, they were tempted to compromise their faith at, at some point, to, to make their belief in God and their obedience to him um, palatable or to try and conform it, to, to kind of wiggle their ways. Like, here we have an example where Darius comes and says, I'm going to make a decree where you cannot pray to your God for 30 days. Did he make a decree that said that they could never pray to their God? No, just for 30 days. Just 30 days, two weeks, stem the tide. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> you know, 30 days is what he says. Just don't pray to your God for 30 days. And, you know, there was a lot of reason for him to say that. Because the idea of praying only to Darius and acknowledging him for 30 days was a way to kind of coalesce the kingdom around one person. And so he wasn't asking Daniel to forsake his God for an indefinite period of time. In fact, as we're going to see, he didn't even realize the impact of his decree. To him, it sounded like a good idea. To Daniel, he said, if I stop praying for 30 days, if I hide that, I will be compromising my faith. Because how did Daniel pray? It says that he would open his window and he would pray towards Jerusalem three times a day. Daniel knew that if he stopped doing that, which had been his practice, it would be an acknowledgement to those around him that he was submitting to a God greater than his God. And he said, that's a bridge too far. I can't compromise that. That is me forsaking the greatest commandment. That is me having some other God before my God. Like, you and I could look at it and say, like, what's the big deal? He could go in his closet, just shut the window, just pray by yourself. Like, just, you know, for the good of the community, for the, you know, just for the kingdom, just, just do this for 30 days. What's the big deal? Daniel says it's a huge deal. Because it's me doing that which would remove me from the practice which acknowledges that my God is worthy to be praised. You know, sometimes compromise can be an okay thing. Like, if you're married, like, you're going to need compromise at times, right? I was... Um, reading something, and I, and I read this story about a husband and a wife and a compromise that they made. The husband had a friend that the wife did not like at all. Didn't like this, this friend at all. Felt like he was a bad influence on her husband. And this friend, this guy, he got sick with COVID. And so the husband came and said, hey, you know, Stanley is sick. Would really like to send him a get well card. I think it'd be good if it came from the both of us. She's like, I'm not signing a card. You know I don't, don't, don't like him. I, I don't want that. He said, you no, know, I think this is important. And she said, fine, you, you, you pick the card, but I get to write the message. He's great compromise, right? So, so he picks out a get well card. And then she goes ahead and she writes the message in the card. Stay positive. <laughs> you get, you get, yeah. If you don't understand it, ask your neighbor. He had COVID. She doesn't like him. Stay, anyways, so compromise sometimes can be an okay thing. Church, 
when it comes to our faith, this is where we do not compromise. Daniel clearly understood that Darius had crossed a line. He had entered into asking Daniel to do something that he had no business asking him to do. And he said, I will make it known. And so he, look at the response. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I know what my God desires of me and I will not compromise. I won't capitulate to culture. And I'm telling you, for us as God's people, we need to hear this. We need to be wise. We need to be discerning because there is a strong pull to, as you engage the community and seek its good, to slowly look to adapt our faith to the culture and the community. But Daniel was clear on where that line was, and he says, I will not forsake the worship of my God. I will not do anything for my culture or for my community that violates the law of God, and I will make him known. He was clear on where he could not compromise. The question is, are we? And that leads us to something. You see, because there's someone in this text that served as a contrast to Daniel, and it was Darius. See, one of the things that God's people need in exile is discernment. God's people use discernment. Darius had it, or Darius didn't have it, Daniel did. You know why we know that Darius didn't have discernment? Because it's pretty obvious. The moment that he realizes the impact of what he had done, he's crushed, which means he didn't think through the impact of his actions. Are you tracking with me? That shows a lack of discernment, that the moment that you agree to something and then you see the consequence, you realize, that's not what I had intended. Darius lacked discernment. Daniel did not. Because the moment that he heard the decree, he said, I'm very clear on what I need to do. Darius should have seen very clearly that what was happening wasn't a good thing. And do you know why? Because the text tells us Darius had put three men over the kingdom of, ba of the Medes and the Persians at that time. And yet, Daniel is not mentioned as one of the officials that came to him to present this idea. If Darius had been a discerning person, when these guys came, two of them and whoever else, and said, hey, we got a great idea. It's going to impact the entire kingdom, and everybody's on board. A wise and discerning man would have said, where's Daniel? I know you're telling me that you're all in agreement, but you top three, there's only two of you. Why isn't Daniel here? He failed to think through what his actions would lead to, even though they told him, you do know, um, King Darius, that the law of the Medes and the Persians, once you sign this into law, there's no, you know, there's no take-backs, right? No take-backs. And he's like, yeah, 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 no, I, I get that. And so he signs it. There was a lack of discernment that he showed. And Daniel's saying, we need discernment as the people of God. It's not going to be easy. It can be hard. We can be faced with things. But 
Fortunately for us, we have the law of God, we have the word of God, we have the truth of Christ to lead and to guide us. And I'm telling you, if you're making major life decisions, if you're looking to engage the culture and you're failing to subject your thoughts to God's thoughts first, you're showing a lack of discernment and you're walking down a path that could ultimately have consequences in the moment you're not thinking about. God's people use discernment, but you just don't come and say, I have the gift of discernment. No, you come to the word of God to know what is true, to know what is ultimately right. So this is a story that comes to us, and it comes to us and it says, God's people in exile, we seek the good of the city, we work with excellence, we don't compromise our faith, we make it known, we use discernment as we engage, and here's the thing that the story tells us, that when you do that, everybody's going to love you, everybody's going to want to do things for you. If you live this way, you'll never have any problems. Is that what the story says? No, because Daniel lived this way. This is what Daniel did, and yet the story tells us that Daniel then faced persecution. See, there's no guarantees that when you and I live this way, we will be loved and we will be accepted. The truth is, you probably won't. And so as God's people, we should expect persecution. God's people expect persecution. We're not surprised by it. In fact, Daniel is a great example. He is not shocked by this. We know he's not shocked because it says the moment he heard about it, he just went and he prayed. He went to his room and he prayed. If you're going to follow the Lord, if you're going to walk in his ways, if you're going to have this uh, moral integrity, and if you're going to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, one of the things that you and I should anticipate is there will be people that don't like that. Jesus even said, listen, the world hated me. Good news. It's also going to hate you. Are you prepared for that? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they show us that they were a people who knew that if they weren't going to compromise their faith, there could be consequences that came their way, and they were ready for it. They were ready for it because ultimately they accepted what, what came. And, and what they show us in their action is this, is that when they faced persecution, they did not respond to persecution with sin. God's people respond to persecution without sin. It would have been so easy, so easy, I believe, for Daniel in this passage to have gone off on Darius. For Daniel to try and raise up a revolt against him. But Daniel, he doesn't do that. He doesn't take the persecution that he faces as an opportunity to give in to the flesh and to sin Instead, what does he do? He entrusts himself to the Lord. But, you know, in the midst of this, I, I do need to draw attention to something. Did you notice why the government officials, why they chose to persecute Daniel? Did they persecute Daniel because they hated his God? Does the text say that they persecuted Daniel because they hated his righteousness? Here's one of the things that you have to recognize. You know, persecution can come for a lot of different reasons, not just simply because people hate your God. The text lets us know that they persecuted Daniel because they were jealous. Their persecution of Daniel didn't start until Darius said, I'm going to make you the leader over all the leaders. You're not going to be one of three. You're going to be the one over the three and the 120. 
Sometimes persecution can come because people are, are ignorant. They lack the knowledge. Sometimes persecution can come because they simply hate the Lord that we serve. Sometimes persecution can come because the people are jealous. Sometimes perse persecution can come because people don't like the way that we're ultimately living. And they feel bad about it. They're guilty that you're living this way and they're living that way. But one of the things that God's people are aware of is that persecution can come. And when it does, we don't respond to it with sin. It's not like God comes and says, well, now's the time. Go ahead, throw the gloves off. Go after them, attack them. Jesus is ultimately the example of this. Isaiah prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. It says like uh, sheep before its shears is silent, so he won't open his mouth. It doesn't mean that we invite persecution it doesn't mean like in a country like ours that we don't use the means to and the laws to address those things. Did you even notice how Darius, the moment he realized what he had done, he says he spent all day trying to overturn it. But it was, it was law. And so we look at this story, and as I said, Daniel chapter 6 is ultimately the summation of, of all of these truths that we've been seeing in the book up to this, this point. It shows us that for you and I, as we live in Valley Center in the year 2021, we should seek the good of our city and community. We should be engaged in it. There should be an excellence and integrity in how we work that people should see that and should know that about us. They should know of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something that you hide under a bushel, no, but that it's made known. They should see that we won't compromise our faith, even if it means that the world won't like us. And as persecution, if it comes, we're prepared for it, and we know that we're not going to sin against people in return. And, and listen, as I thought about this this week, as you, as you look at all of these truths that come out of this story, it, it begs one very big question. How can we live like this? It's not, how can we live like this? It's like, how can any of us live like this? How can, how can we actually manifest these, these things? I, I remember there was a story growing up, or a song, you know, Dare to be a Daniel. This story isn't ultimately about, look at how great Daniel is. You're supposed to be like Daniel. Because Daniel couldn't be Daniel apart from one thing. And, and it's the truth that, that enables you and I to live this kind of life in the world. And the truth is very simply, we know that God will rescue and provide for those who trust in him. This is how we can live this kind of life, is because we know and believe that our God rescues and provides for those who trust in him. For his people, God shows himself faithful. He has said to you and he has said to me, I have provided all that you need for life and for godliness. There is nothing that you will go through in this life that I haven't ultimately shown myself faithful to rescue you from or to sustain you from. It says of Daniel that he trusted in his God. And there's this little thing that we can miss. Sometimes we think that God's rescuing of us and providing for us means that we won't go through the trial and the hardship and the persecution. Did you see how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when did God deliver them? Before they got into the fiery furnace or when they were in the furnace? 
when they were in the furnace? Did God provide for and rescue Daniel before he got into the lion's den or when he was in the lion's den? How does that, does that feel encouraging or does that feel like, oh, oh, uh, what I'm picking up here is that I might go into a situation that looks to be my undoing, but God showed himself faithful to rescue and to provide for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that moment as they went into the furnace and he did the same for Daniel. And you say, how can I know that he's going to do the same for me? I always wondered, why did Daniel have the trust and faith in God that he did? Part of that answer was because he knew the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob. He knew the story of God parting the Red Sea and delivering the Israelites. He knew the great stories of the faith, how God had saved David from Goliath. Daniel had all of these stories. And so the God who showed himself faithful to his people in those times, Daniel demonstrated a faith in him. But how do we know that he'll do the same for us? Because we have a story far greater than Daniel. We don't look to Daniel's faith and Daniel going into the lion's den as what ultimately shows us that God will provide for you and for me. You see, because there was somebody who went into another pit and had another stone rolled over it. Jesus Christ is who we look to. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Daniel. Jesus Christ, see, Daniel didn't go into the lion's den for you and for me, but Jesus Christ went to the cross for you and for me. And it's there at the cross that the ultimate sacrifice was made. It was there at the cross that Jesus Christ demonstrates, how can I, you know, that no matter what comes, you will have the ability to walk and not compromise your faith, to love people who won't love you in return because the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. See, we have the greatest story. Daniel had only part of the story. We have the whole story. We know that there is a rescuer, there is a redeemer for us, and his name is Jesus, and he went into death. He didn't go into a lion's den. He went into the tomb. And he came out three days later. Daniel was just in there 24 hours. Big whips, three days. <laughs> and he showed his victory over sin and death and hell. But then there's one more way that you and I can believe that ultimately Jesus is that provision for you. There's something striking in the text of Daniel. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace, do you remember they came out and everybody marveled at something about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They marveled at the fact that their clothes had not burned, and that they didn't smell of smoke. Truly, this was a miracle. They went unharmed while they were in the fiery furnace. And it says of Daniel the same thing. When they took him out of the pit and they looked at him, they said there was no harm found on him either. And we stand amazed at that. But you know, there's something unique about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross. He suffered the death that you and I were supposed to die to make the provision for us that we could not make for ourselves. And you say, how can I trust in him and what he did for me? Because when Jesus went into that tomb and he came out, he came out with something still on him. When he stood before Thomas after his resurrection, Thomas doubted, are you really, is it really you? 
Did you really die and rise again? And what did Jesus say? Look at my hands. See, see my nail-pierced hands. See my pierced side. Stick your fingers there. I carry with me the wounds of what I did. Daniel came out unharmed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out unsinged. Jesus, for all eternity, one day when you and I see him face to face, he still carries those wounds for us as a testimony for what he did for you. And so we come and we say, this life that we live, we have faith that we can live it in hope and we can live it in a way that demonstrates that, that he reigns and that he rules come what may because of what he's done. I close with this. The prophet Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. Shocker, I know. But he also wrote another book. Does anybody want to guess what other book he wrote? Does anybody know what it's called? Go ahead, you can say it. Lamentations. Jeremiah, the prophet who predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and God's people being carried off into captivity, the prophet who spoke and said, this is how you're to live in captivity, the prophet who, like Daniel, experienced the consequence of exile, he wrote the book of Lamentations. And you all know what a lamentation is, right? A lamentation is a crying out and a weeping over what has happened. In the book of Lamentations, the first two and a half chapters are Jeremiah doing that calling out and talking about the hardships and the trials and the pain that he's experiencing. But he closes out the book in Lamentations 3.21 and he says these words. Look at them with me. But this I call to mind. How do I get through it? How am I sustained? He says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new Every morning, God is faithful, God provides, and he says in verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will have hope in him. Christ today is our ultimate hope. His steadfast love is there for us every single morning. We don't follow Daniel's example just because it's a good thing to do. We walk as Daniel walked because we too have the same God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you, as we close this time, we reflect that our souls are weak. We reflect that we are incapable of living as your sons, living as your daughters, making Christ known in ourselves. But we thank you and rejoice in you that through your son, Jesus Christ, we have a greater hope even than Jeremiah knew, a greater hope than even Daniel knew, that there's not one day where we need to question your provision and your ability to rescue because we look to Christ, we see his wounds, and we know it is finished. And so to him be the glory and the praise both now for and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen.